maybe you're waiting for God and God's waiting for you and nothing's ever going to happen till you get together. It's a collaborative eschatology. Mm. <laughs> it's about cooperation. Yeah. It's about participation. Mm. It's about, he might have said covenant. It's about joining. So I see the radical message of Jesus, which is absolutely with, within Judaism, but it's saying, get with the program. God's waiting for you. You won't do it without God, but God's not going to do it without you. He might even have gone back to Genesis and say, you're, you're made in the image and likeness of God. Start acting like it. Friends, happy Easter. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn, and uh, this is a good day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, as they used to say in my my old church days growing up. Uh, but happy Easter. This is, this is a fun episode. Um, I have been sitting on this for a long time. Uh, it's episode number 92. It's part number four of our series, uh, Deconstructing Easter. And today we're talking to the one and the only uh, Dr. John Dominic Crossan about resurrection. He wrote this magnificent book. Uh, you, you, need to, you need to hit pause. You need to go to Amazon. You need to buy this book. It's a hardcover book. looks almost like a coffee table book. It's fairly large. And it's filled with beautiful art. Uh, he compares in this book the difference between how the Church of the East uh, views resurrection compared to the Church of the West. And you're going to hear all about it in this episode, but this book fascinates me. Um, I have underlined, I have highlighted, I have taken this book apart, and I still have so much more to dig through and uh, Dom, as he wants to be called Dom, so you're going to hear in the episode he explains why, but uh, Dom has done a beautiful job, and this is a real gift. I think this book is a real gift uh, to the world. So do yourself a favor, go pick up this book, and have at it. Uh, Patreon.com slash whatifproject if you want to support the show. Link is in the show notes. What If Project community, if you want to find some friends to wander through the wilderness of your faith with uh, that link will also be in the show notes. Um, Heretic Shop is a place where you can go to buy t-shirts, hoodies, swag for the podcast. That link is also in the show notes. Derek Webb is doing all of the special music for this series. His links are also in the show notes. But all that to say, I'm not going to talk about anything else because it's Easter Sunday. Uh, he is risen. And this is episode number 92. Uh, my conversation with John Dominic Crossan. Enjoy. I'm away. Eyes wide open, shaking like a little earthquake. On the right side of trouble, breathing just for goodness sake. An invisible hand waving just over my Shine. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, it is great to have you here. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the resurrection with the one and the only uh, John Dominic Crossan. So, uh, Dom, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's an honor to talk with you. And to be with you, Glenn. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you. So before we jump into our chat um, about the resurrection, could you tell us a little bit more uh, maybe about yourself, especially for people who maybe aren't so familiar with you and your your writing? Uh, who are you? What do you do? Maybe a little bit about your story. Okay, fast resume. And I <laughs> want to start with this weird name, John Dominique Crossan. It sounds, always sounds pretentious to me. Couldn't you be John D. Crossan or like everyone? Right. Why do you have to? The story is this, and it's, it's really part of the introduction. Uh, when I was 16 years of age, this would be way back in 1950, I decided I wanted to be a monastic priest. Hmm. So I entered a monastery. My name at that time was John Crossan. I was in, living in Donegal in Ireland, of course, so it was Sean O'Crossan. But anyway, John Crossan. When you go into a monastery, like in the Bible, when you get a new vocation, Abraham, for example, they wipe out your past and give you only a future. They change your name. Hmm. All of a sudden, I became Brother Dominic, and then eventually Father Dominic. Now, 19 years later, this would be um, 19, what, 69, I decided that celibacy was vastly overrated. <laughs> so I decided I'm going to leave the monastery and the priesthood. But look, with that exception, I'm taking everything else with me. Hmm. I, it made me who I am, and I'm terribly grateful for it. And I wouldn't change a thing with that, <laughs> except for leaving. But <laughs> I'm putting Dominic in the middle. Now, it has no legal standing. Hmm. It's not on my passport. It's not on my TSA. It's not on my driving license, John Crossan. But the, my God knows me as Dominic, and my government knows me as John, and they're not on speaking terms at the moment. Hmm. So there's no confusion. So I hmm. keep it in there just anyone who knows me calls me Dominic or Dom. And so like if you address me today, Glenn, you'll be calling me not John, but Dom. And basically, it goes back to the fact that I went to a boarding school in Ireland, the classical boarding school, had five years of Greek, five years of Latin. Um, when I came to this country, my superiors in the religious order said, five years of Greek and five years of Latin? We, we don't do that here in America. You're going, <laughs> you're going to be a professor. So right. they decided that I would be a professor, and I've loved it ever since. What, uh, what school do you teach in? I, I'm a official title is Professor Emeritus. Emeritus is a Latin word that means you get to live in Florida. It's basically, <laughs> you have all the advantages of being a professor in terms of access to libraries and everything else, but you don't have to teach or go to meetings. So I'm Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at DePaul University in Chicago, which is the largest Roman Catholic university probably in the country, I suspect. And you told me before we hit record that you do a lot of uh, work in churches, speaking in churches? Well, what happened basically, I went to university when I left the seminary, the monastery, priesthood in 69. And I was simply writing for scholars. In other words, I was writing those books that no normal human being would ever read. Right. <laughs> bristling with footnotes that scared the living daylights out of you. <laughs> But then after I wrote The Historical Jesus, Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant in 91, mm. I started getting invitations to come to churches for a whole weekend, um, four lectures, maybe preach on Sunday, and something had to give. I couldn't teach undergraduates during the week, mm. Friday to Sunday. So I decided to take early retirement in um, 95. I was 61 at the time. Mm. And since then, I've been basically on the lecture circuit 
and writing, of course, I've always been doing that, but basically writing rather than, uh, sorry, lecturing rather than teaching. So it's, it's a, like a second vocation full time. So your most recent book is uh, Resurrecting Easter and yes. uh, subtitled How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. And um, I just finished this book a couple weeks ago and it um, totally blew my mind. But um, in the book, you talk about how the church in the West views resurrection in one way and then the church in the East views resurrection in a different way. So I think maybe a good place for us to start since this episode is going to drop actually on Easter morning. Um, is can you give us maybe a bit of an overview of the key differences between those understandings of resurrection? And then in particular, what do we mean when we talk about the West versus the East? Okay, and if it's all right, let me back up to how it started with me because what was happening was in the year 2000, Marcus and Marianne Borg asked Sarah and myself to be co-leaders with them to take 40 people around Turkey in the footsteps of Paul. So mm. every Sarah's year, your wife, correct? Sarah's my wife, yes, yep. exactly. My photographer, videographer as well. <laughs> so, um, and I'm very grateful for that because half the time I'm looking at things, looking at things, and she's taking pictures. And then my, when we get back, we get time to look at what we got. Yeah, but, and that book is filled with pictures, by the way, for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. 140 pictures in about 150 pages. And it is, let me explain this something for your audience especially. I've been asked, well, you're getting out of biblical scholarship now, you're getting into art history. And I wanted to scream when somebody said that to me. <laughs> I wanted to say, no, 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 here's what's going on. I'm trying to ask a biblical question. If the, if the Corinthians, let's say the first Corinthians, having finished chapter 15 of first Corinthians, if they said to Paul, now Paul, look, you talk about the execution, crucifixion of Jesus. Now, we know what that's like. We've seen them. You don't have to draw us a picture. <laughs> but then you talk about resurrection. Now, Paul, we understand what an assumption is, an ascension into heaven, because we've seen that in some of the coins here of at least Julius Caesar's star going up to heaven, and Augustus is supposed to have gone up to heaven. So we, we've got assumption down. But now, this thing, resurrection, could, could you draw us a picture, Paul, of what you mean when you, if you were there, Paul, and at the moment, what would you have seen? Mm. Like you were there for the, the crucifixion. We know what you'd have seen. Draw it for us, Paul. So here's my question. Is the Western tradition, at least what became the Western tradition, or the Eastern tradition, which became the Eastern tradition, which would be more like what Paul would draw. So I'm asking really a biblical question. I'm still in biblical scholarship. Mm. So what, what happened then is as we're going around Turkey every year, we began to see, you know, you walk into the church, you see in Cappadocia, they're carved into the, into the, the Tufa rock. And you're, it's like being inside a miniature cathedral and you're recognizing the whole life of Christ around doesn't take, you know, you recognize the nativity, you recognize <laughs> baptism, you know, anyone who knows the biblical story recognizes them. You come to the crucifixion, of course, you recognize that. Then the next picture should be the resurrection. Hmm. But the one after that shows the, the uh, descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And then what I'm waiting to see, of course, they, is a tomb of some type, or at least a sarcophagus, I expect to see soldiers kind of around the bottom, either asleep or looking in amazement or awe. And I'm expecting to see Jesus coming forth and kind of ascending, 
hovering above it as, as, as it were. And then I get a completely different image. Mm. It shows Jesus. He's gorgeously robed, by the way. And in his left hand, he's carrying the cross, not the great big wooden cross, sure. but the holy cross. I see his wounds are very prominent. Mm. I see the gates of Hades now, not of hell, but of Hades, the place of the dead, are in cruciform position. They're, they're double bifold gates or bifold gates and they're crossed and he's standing on them and he's reaching out to grasp the hands of Adam and Eve. Mm. And I'm going to say, Where the, what are they doing in there? I thought they were the problem. Mm. So he's taking the human race out with it. Adam and Eve, of course, are in biblical tradition, the progenitors, if you will, the ancestors of the human race. Mm. So instead of coming out alone and glorious, triumphal uh, <laughs> individuality, he's coming out with the human race. Mm. Now, the first time I saw it actually was 2002, I think. It was in Cappadocia, in the dark chapel in Cappadocia. And everything is so weirdly strange in that lunar landscape of Cappadocia that it sort of went in, okay, you know, this is a different image. What and then as we travel through Turkey every year, annually after 2000, and then after Sarah and I started getting curious and go to all sorts of other places, all the way from, you know, Italy to Romania to 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 Syria, even we got into Syria in 2010, probably the last year we could have done it mm. <laughs> safely. Russia, Egypt, everywhere we were going, we can see this is the way Eastern Christianity depicts the resurrection. Mm. And then it was like a revelation. It wasn't like we're wrong or anything, but we have a different one in the West, Western Christianity, I mean, than we have in Eastern Christianity. Mm. Now, how did that happen? And when we talk about it in the West, are we aware? I mean, when scholars write books about the resurrection, hmm. what are they imagining? Are they imagining the Western <laughs> vision? Hmm. Or are they imagining the Eastern vision? And why do we have two? We, we don't, you know, the, if you look at the execution of Jesus, the West doesn't show a crucifixion and the East show a stoning or something. You know, it always looks the same. There's yeah. Eve's. If you look at the the nativity, well, there might be some interesting differences in the East. They have Jesus getting his first bath. They show that he's human. Hmm. But, you know, basically you'd recognize it. If you'd looked at the whole scenes of Jesus on an Eastern church, you know, he, he's standing there and there's waters up to his waist and somebody is pouring water on, on his head and it's a guy who looks like he needs a good shave and a haircut. <laughs> Yeah, you, you recognize immediately. <laughs> I know this with 40 people and nobody ever said to me, what, what's that scene up there? Mm. They recognize them, of course, all except the resurrection. Mm. So it became a huge question for us. And we weren't thinking of a book at this stage. We were just trying to figure out what's going on and going back every year till we finally got it that, yes, one is in the West, one is in the East, and the difference is in the West, it's individual. Jesus is glorious, triumphant, magnificent, but very much alone. Mm. And in the East, he's very much universal. He's coming out with the whole human race, holding them by the hand. I mean, it's rather delicately gentle. 
he's, he's almost bending down from the waist, reaching out and taking the hand of Adam and some of the earlier ones. Eve, some of the earlier ones, it's just Adam, Eve is standing there and it's not clear whether she's out already. Kind or like an onlooker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they finally get to be an equal opportunity resurrection <laughs> and Jesus has one hand for Adam, one hand for Eve, and then you get an angel having to carry the cross. Mm. So you're always reminded that the resurrected one is the executed one. You're never allowed to think, well, you know, that was a bad day on Friday, but everything's okay now, it's Sunday. It's always the executed one who is resurrecting the human race. Mm. That became the theological challenge for me in the book. So the West, I mean, I've been through seminary and I went through Bible college and I hadn't really heard about this until I honestly came across your book. And that was rather disheartening to me because I felt like I would have gleaned so much more, I think, from schooling had I known there was this other way to to think. But that's besides the point. But my point is that it seems like the Western narrative has become the dominant narrative. And so I'm wondering if you had to pinpoint like the main reason as to why that is, what what would you say to that? All right. I think I, I would qualify what you said. I would say the Western one is the dominant one in the West. Mm. And the Eastern one is the dominant one in the East. Yeah. Um, we were in, you know, in Belgrade the Sunday after Easter, of oh, I don't know what year, one of the, one of the years uh, in Serbia. And as you walked into the cathedral, there was like a red carpet going all the way towards the iconostasis at the front, a little kind of loop red um, things that guided you in. So everyone that came in had to walk all the way up and there was an icon on a, a little stand there. Everyone went up, touched the icon with their forehead and with their lips. To be honest with you, I just did it with my forehead. <laughs> yeah. I'll pass. <laughs> but everyone did it. Yeah. So this is still very much the Eastern. So in one sense, hmm. without being kind of rude, it's kind of our ignorance. It's, it's sort of like as if you saw um, somebody wearing completely different clothes. And you said, they're weird. Yeah. No, okay, they're kind of not weird. <laughs> it's just, mm. just different. Right. And we are not the norm. But it does, it does amaze me, to be honest with you, even how many learned scholarly works I've read on the resurrection that never even mention the Eastern resurrection and seem to be imagining in their mind, or if there's a picture on the cover of the book, the Western. So mm. it goes back to this, Len, and here's where we, we have to start. Now, I didn't, I didn't start here because I didn't know enough to start here, but every single major incident in the life of Jesus, ones we mentioned, the, the, the nativity, for example, you recognize it, as I said, the, if you see two women hugging one another in the next scene, that, that's Mary and Elizabeth. Every single major incident is described quite adequately in the New Testament. Hmm all except the actual resurrection itself, which is, of course, the most important one of them all. Mm. There's lots of pictures of what happened afterwards, the finding of the empty tomb. Is it the, the women who are there or the, or the apostles who are there? Jesus appears to the women. Jesus appears to the apostles in Galilee and Jerusalem, upper room by the lake. Lots of, there's almost so much after stuff 
you can call the proofs, if you will, of the resurrection, but you suddenly realize, wait a minute, I'm being deluged with, with, a, with effects, with results, with consequences. I'd like to see a description of the actual moment itself. Hmm. It's almost as if instead of having any images or descriptions in the New Testament of the crucifixion, we simply got a description of the Pieta, that gorgeous Michelangelo statue of Mary holding the body of her murdered son on her lap. Hmm. But they never showed you, never described the crucifixion. There is no description of the crucifixion itself in the New Testament. Hmm. So that opened up, of course, a huge gap, should I put it? When artists started to say, all right, now I'm going to, to <laughs> let's imagine this was an artist in Constantinople. It's the year 400, and he's been assigned a huge project in the Emperor Constantine. Well, that's a bit late for Constantine, but anyway, in, in the fourth century, let's say, the Emperor Constantine says, I want a copy of Matthew's Gospel from my imperial chapel, and I want a full page illustration of every major event. Hmm. Got it? Yes, yes, your imperial highness, I got it. And I'm doing great, and I'm rolling, and every one of them doing fine. Get to the crucifixion. All of a sudden, what am I going to do for the resurrection? Now what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone says, well, you put the women at the empty tomb. That's what we've done before. But that's, that's afterwards. They're there because the tomb is empty. Hmm. That's not a picture of the resurrection. So I imagine the poor artist going to the theologians, and they're saying, hmm, it's a mystery. Hmm. Like, Excuse me, your, your reverence. So is the crucifixion. So is the nativity. They're all mysteries. Hmm. But so is the descent of the Holy Spirit. But you got a nice picture of that. And Luke has two different descriptions of the ascension, and surely that's a mystery. Don't hmm. pull a mystery on me. Yeah, hmm. get, get away from it. Don't leave us. No, go away. <laughs> so... It, it left them with a huge problem in the first millennium. Now, forget East and West for the moment, because we're just talking about one united church. We're, we're, we're talking before the split, which doesn't happen till the 11th century and is absolutely confirmed when the West destroyed Constantinople in the 13th century. So let's imagine a united Christ, a, sorry, united Christian community, East and West, because I don't know whether they call Constantine East or West. <laughs> you have this problem. How do we depict the resurrection? Hmm. And it's a huge, it's a theological problem. The theologians are describing it. They're, they're quite, quite willing to talk about going down and uh, taking Adam and Eve and liberating them. But you know, I, have, I have to depict it now as an artist. Hmm. So where they went to actually was the coinage. Because the coins were the only mass medium of communication, artistic communication, images in the ancient world. Everyone had in their hand at least one bronze ace, you know, they might be <laughs> a silver denarius, that a golden aureus, but at least they'd seen these images. Hmm. And they'd seen the pictures of the, the emperor holding his staff of command and you know, liberating, because this is good propaganda. You're not conquering people. You're mm. liberating them. You're liberating them from uh, bondage or you're liberate, liberating them from rural into urban civilization. Mm. And these gave them the images 
which they could then use to depict the more universal resurrection when Christ carrying the cross, which is his imperial staff, if you will, liberates Adam and Eve from Hades. Mm. Uh, that's very important. It, Hades is the place of death. Mm -hmm. It's not the place of punishment. Everyone goes to Hades in the ancient world. Mm. So it's not whether you were good or bad. That's a separate issue completely. Hades is the place of death. So this Eastern image shows me, if, I, if I'm decoding an image now, not saying whether I like it, dislike it, but in the same way as you and I can look at two yellow arches and know what they mean. Mm. McDonald's, we, we can decode it. We're used to advertising, so we can decode the image. The image shows me Jesus, as I said, the executed one, carrying his cross, and he's liberating the human race from death. Mm -hmm. Hades is the place of death. And so I have to think, what on earth does that mean? Before I even get to say I believe, I disbelieve, mm -hmm. what is being communicated to me in that image? I, I read it, I know this is a little crude to say, I read it almost as if it was an advertisement. What message am I getting from that? And the message I'm getting from that is hugely important today because Jesus as the executed one was executed for non-violent, I'm going to use the word revolution, I'm going to use a strong word, not just resistance. Mm from programmatic nonviolent revolution against Roman imperialism, against mm. Roman injustice, Roman violence, Roman control of his homeland. This is an option that was not created by Jesus, but in first century Judea, under Romanization, there were two options, armed revolt, and there was one in 4 BCE, and there was another one in 66, and both of them, of course, were disastrous. Hmm. But in the interval between 4 BCE and 66, during the time of Jesus, for example, in the start of the first century, all sorts of experiments were conducted in programmatic, organized, nonviolent resistance hmm. against Rome. It, it was what you'd expect you know, after a first revolt had got. 2,000 people crucified in, in <laughs> Jerusalem. Yeah. And they're going to come this terrible war of 66 to 74 when 500 a day will be crucified in Jerusalem until they ran out of trees. Mm. People are experimenting with nonviolence. And of course, nonviolence in the name of God because everything they're doing is in the name of God. Mm. So Jesus is part of that program. And he's announcing the kingdom of God here on earth and it's, it's embodied in nonviolent resistance to violence. Mm. That's why I think we have to trust the Romans on this one. They crucified Jesus, they executed him, but they didn't round up his followers. Mm. And when Rome went against a violent group, you have the story of Barabbas in Mark's gospel, they would grab the leader and you know, as many of his top lieutenants as they could get and crucify them together to make their point. Hmm. If Rome was threatened by nonviolent resistance, their strategy was to pick off the leader, execute him alone, 
And if you guys are still at it five years from now, we pick off your next leader and your next leader mm. until you get the message. And we know that from Roman civil law that says if anyone causes turmoil among the people, that's the expression, turmoil among the people, he should be either crucified like Jesus, cast to the wild beasts like Ignatius of Antioch, or exiled to an island like John of Patmos. Mm. So Romans, Rome, if I only knew that Pilate executed Jesus but didn't execute his followers, I would know that Jesus was conducting nonviolent, not just personal nonviolent mm. resistance, but fomenting, they would say, nonviolent revolution against us. Mm. So what I read this then as saying, what will save the human race? Adam and Eve are the human race. What will save us from the escalatory violence that seems to be our drug of choice? Mm. Um, and by that, I, by escalatory violence, I mean that it only took us 3,000 years to get from an iron sword to an atom bomb. Mm. And wow. we're, we're very good at lots of things. I, I, I'm not saying that lots of other things didn't get better. <laughs> we, we, of course, <laughs> you know, lots of things got better. Yeah. But so did our capacity to destroy. Mm. And that's the message I'm getting from this. How do we save the human species? What yeah. saves the human species from itself? Not mm. from anything else, but from itself. That's the message I'm getting, especially from the Eastern vision. Wow, that's so good. I guess then in the in the West, like in my own upbringing, thinking about my own time in church, especially on like Easter morning and stuff, it's about it's about Jesus coming out of the tomb, like you said, by himself, um, going up into the sky by himself. But he's taking, he's focusing on me as an individual, whereas this Eastern tradition is more focused, like you said, on the whole human race, not just saving one person, but saving almost, I guess, humanity from humanity. Saving human, thank you, Glenn, that's perfect. And, and you see it in the image. It's not that he's there and we have to say, oh, and now, I'm, and by the way, remember that. When you look at the Western image, you have to say, and please remember, if you believe that this happened to him, the same thing will happen to you. Hmm. It's not in the picture. Hmm. It may be there in the interpretation, but it's not in the picture. In, yeah. in the Eastern one, it's in the picture. He is taking Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve couldn't be clearer. Adam and Eve are the human race. Yeah. If it was just, say, um, let's say Abraham and David, or Isaiah and Jeremiah, or any other two you want to mention, it mm. wouldn't be the same. It just... And the other thing is that assumption, and the thing is that the Western one looks awfully close to assumption. Any, any pious Roman, with an open mind, they haven't had an enlightenment. <laughs> a, a pious Roman listening to Paul would say, "But well, now wait a minute, Paul. You're saying you're you're this Jesus the Christ, right? Has ascended up to heaven. Okay, I have no problem with that because we have this story about Augustus, the or a, let's say Caesar the Augustus. He's ascended into heaven, hmm. and that's why the Roman Empire is doing so good today because he's protecting us from heaven." He's brought peace on earth. He's the Pax Romana. You know all about Paul. This is the peace. You and I are living in this peace. We can travel. 
how can this guy Jesus do anything for us? We've got there. Mm. So tell me how your Jesus does something for me that my Augustus doesn't. And mm. that's the point that Jesus would say, now we're rolling. Mm. He, would not say, he would not say, listen, don't believe that silly stuff about Augustus going up to heaven. That's all bunk. The advantage of this open-minded Roman is that he is ready to believe what we might call bunk, if you want to be blunt. <laughs> if, if Caesar is that important and that powerful, he established the, the Roman peace, mm. he's not just going to die and molder into dust, he's taken up among the gods. Mm. Now, now come back, he says, tell me what your Jesus could do. And here's where Paul would say, look, the justification of the world that Rome brought is temporary. Mm. He would say, he knows his Daniel chapter seven. He would say, remember the Assyrians, remember the Babylonians, remember the Medes and the Persians, remember the Greeks, remember the Syrians, remember Rome's going to. All it establishes is, and this might be the slogan Rome <laughs> Paul would use, they establish peace by victory. Mm. And it's never worked, Paul would say. But, but, but Paul, it's working right now. Look, look all around you. It was working in the middle of the Assyrian Empire. It was working for, <laughs> it was working for Babylon. It was working for, and he goes through the thing because they knew this. You could see it in Daniel 7. They knew the list of empires and what had happened. Hmm. So, he, okay, okay, then tell me, tell me, what's Jesus going to do? Well, if we start living, he wouldn't say this. I was going to say, if he, living like Jesus, he wouldn't say that. He would say, if you accept the spirit of Jesus, if you accept the spirit of Jesus of nonviolent resistance to violence against the earth, against its people, against the animals, against everything, if you accept that vision and live by it, you will save yourself. That will be the, the Pax mm. Christiana, he might say. Now, the guy might say to Paul, you know, you're kind of a nice guy. And I like you, Paul. And you're very good at your, your trade, but I think you're a bit nuts. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going with Augustus. Fine. Paul would say, okay, okay, no business here. <laughs> but he'd go on to somebody else who might say, okay, no, I, I'm interested. I, I'm a freed slave. Mm. And I was captured in war over there. And my father was captured. And I, I'm interested in this. I, I'm a freed slave. Tell me about this, this different way. It, there's a different way of establishing peace, is there, Paul? Yeah, it's peace through justice. When everyone gets a fair share of the earth that belongs to God, mm. ah, then you'll have peace. So this is like a temporary lull, Paul? No, yeah. Mm. Now Paul's got, <laughs> got the client. <laughs> Somebody was listening. And of course, it's going to be the ones who are somehow ready for this. Mm. We're not perfectly happy with the Roman Empire. We're going to say, ah, oh. now there's always a possibility to that aristocrat mm. who's going to say, well, yeah, I was here uh, under Caligula. And that's it. That's the Roman Emperor Caligula. <laughs> and now we've got Claudius. And well, he's a little bit better. But then, then we got Nero. Mm. Nero, this, this is it. This is the leadership of the Roman Empire. It's, this is going down the tube. It's just a matter of time. So even an aristocrat might say, you know, I'm listening. I'm not sure yet, but I'm listening. Mm. So I think that's the vision 
that really is behind Eastern. And the danger of the Western one is that it does play into our, of course, to be honest with you, plays a bit into our hero worship stuff or superhero, yeah. a bit like Superman, you know, he's going to save you and kind of all you have to do is go along with it. I suppose mm. you have to believe in it maybe. Yeah. And I think too, like thinking like, as you're talking, I'm thinking again, back to my own theology classes in school and stuff. And I think the whole peace through victory versus peace through justice for all, like peace through victory seems to really magnify even in our eschatology, like our understanding of like the end times and things like that, because I was always taught, you know, again, you know, God, Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be fire. There's going to be all this stuff. The world's going to be destroyed. But at the end of the day, the more biblical message I think is that, you know, God is going to restore all things that victory is going to come through justice, not through some kind of victory where people get slaughtered and destroyed. Well, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a Jew and that's not just a matter of ethnic identity. Yeah. Tradition of what, what we will call the eschatological hope of Judaism, which simply means that they looked around in the world and every time they saw an empire, its boot was on their neck. Mm. Judaism, instead of saying, which you would have expected, well, we'll have our turn eventually, you know, mm. uh, they said, God is going to create someday. Uh, they said, God will overcome someday. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they were marching around saying, this can't go on. If mm. there's a God and God's in control of the universe, this isn't right. Yeah. Well, how do you explain it? Well, God's been patient, they might say, but someday, someday, we have God's going to change. Now, I think the message that Jesus is giving into that hope is, look, people, you've been waiting for God to do it for you. Hmm. My message is that we have to do it with God, get with the program. It's not going to do it by itself. And people must have said, Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our tradition says that God's going to do it. We can hope for it and pray for it and expect it and wait for it. But God's going to do it. And I think Jesus's new message, and I'm going to say new message within Jewish eschatology was, did you ever wonder why it hasn't happened for the last 700 years since Isaiah? Mm. Maybe, maybe you're waiting for God and God's waiting for you and nothing's ever going to happen till you get together. I think mm. he would have said it's, it's a collaborative eschatology. Mm. <laughs> it's about cooperation. Yeah. It's about participation. Hmm. It's about, he might have said covenant. It's about joining. So I see the radical message of Jesus, which is absolutely with, within Judaism, hmm. but it's saying, get with the program. God's waiting for you. You won't do it without God, but God's not going to do it without you. Yeah. You might even have gone back to Genesis and said, you're, you're made in the image and likeness of God. Start acting like it. <laughs> yeah. If you look through the Old Testament, I mean, it was always about a collaborative effort, right? I mean, Abraham and God and Moses and God and yeah, always David and God. Yeah. The danger is the other part you mentioned, of course, is that this was a hard message. I mean, it's almost easier to think, well, we're just waiting. God's going to do it. I mean, Collaboration is hard. Yeah. We work out how do we do it? What do we do about the Romans in the first century? And in one sense, what happens in the book of Revelation is almost like John of Patmos saying, I don't think Jesus did it right the first time. 
I think we have to bring them back a second time and do mm -hmm. it right. Mm -hmm. Get over this stuff about the, the peace donkey into Jerusalem and Palm Sunday. Bring them back on a war horse. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a complete dereliction of peace through justice. Mm. Or say, we will get peace through justice after peace through victory. Right. <laughs> victory comes exactly, first. <laughs> exactly what the Romans would have said. Well, yes, yeah. of course. After we have victory, we do administer a just world. We don't go out and rob you. We tax you, but we don't rob you. We don't loot you. We establish justice. But first, we establish victory. Mm. They would have said, yeah, that's pretty much our program. Victory first. Then we have justice. And the whole vision of the prophets and the Torah is no, you get justice first and then you have victory, mm -hmm. <laughs> the victory of God. So it's a, it's a radically different vision. And I, I would think in one sense, part of what we've done in theology, we've separated and focused on the execution of Jesus. I'm saying execution deliberately, not crucifixion, because we've kind of domesticated the term crucifixion. But Jesus was executed. He's the only founder of a great ongoing religion who was actually legally, formally, officially executed. Hmm. And of course, Pilate was right. Jesus opposed Roman law and order by nonviolent revolution. Hmm. Rome said, we, we have established peace through victory. And Rome and Jesus would have said, no, you haven't. You've just established a temporary lull until the next round. Hmm. And the next round will be more violent than the past round because it always has that been for the last, he would say, thousand years. I've read my Bible. I know what happens to empires. Mm. They, they come, they conquer, they fall. Right. So you're going to fall to Rome because that's the way it's always been. But you leave behind slaughtered thousands, as empires always do when they leave. And then we start all over again. Your system, he would have said if he was talking to Augustus, with all due respect, you belong to a bankrupt system. Mm. And Augustus would have said, but there's no alternative. Tell me what anyone has ever done except peace by victory. And Jesus would have said, yeah, that's what's wrong. It's a system. <laughs> that's <laughs> my point. <laughs> you keep doing the same thing over and over again. Right. And the definition of ignorance is doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you get that in the last scene, you know, in John's gospel where he's, Jesus is shown, I think it's a magnificent parable that sums up the whole thing in one sentence. Mm. Jesus is talking to Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my guys would be in here fighting to get me out. Mm. That's, that's really quite clear. Your kingdom is a kingdom based on violence. Mm. Look at the soldiers all around. Where are my soldiers? I'm in here all alone. I'm nothing on my side but God. Mm. And yeah, you can kill me. But you mm. can't extinguish me. <laughs> <laughs> because I incarnate a vision which is bigger than yours on the long run of human history. I hope, Jesus mm. might have said. I hope. Talk to me a little bit about, let's backpedal to the okay. piece you said about um, Hades and um, hell. Because yeah. in, the, in the paintings, what I found so interesting is very early on in the book, a lot of the paintings that you showed have uh, Jesus uh, descending into Hades, uh, standing on this figure that's described as Hades. He's reaching into, you know, this like darkness, like area of almost like a pit reaching out and bringing in or pulling up, I should say, Adam and Eve. But then you have this, 
this shift that happens where now all of a sudden Jesus is standing on, looks like a devil. He's reaching into fire and he's pulling out Adam and Eve. And like, there's there's an obvious shift in people's thinking from Hades to hell. So I'm wondering where did that shift happen? And what has that shift you think caused us to misunderstand about, about the resurrection? And that's a marvelous question, Glenn. Basically, sometimes in the book, I have to use the best pictures I have. So, you know, a lot of those very early ones are are frescoes in churches and they're almost gone. And I hate to show people a picture and you can't really see there. Mm. So here's what happened. The word Hades in Greek, it sounds exactly the same. It's just anglicized Greek, means the place of death. Mm. It's, It's imagined like a giant kind of a prison house, I guess you could call it. But they believe that somebody like Aeneas, for example, and Virgil's Aeneid, he can go down into Hades. He can meet his father and she says there, hmm. which means, of course, they've some kind of a body. Otherwise, he couldn't recognize him. So it's, it's not a body like ours. It's like a wraith-like body, a ghostly body, whatever. Hmm. But they understood that everyone's down there and under certain circumstances, even somebody could come up and appear to the living from Hades. It, it's a place of, it's the grave, kind mm. of. And Judaism taught very much the same. They thought of Shoal as like a giant condominium complex of, of graves beneath the earth. And they said it was dusty, dark, gloomy, because they walked inside a tomb. So it's not a place of punishment. I must insist on that. It's mm. not in itself a place of punishment. You could make it a place of punishment. So now, when the Latins come along and they have to say, how are we going to translate Hades into Latin? This is where they made a fatal mistake. Mm-hmm. They should have just kept it as Hades. They turned it into hell. Mm. Now, wait a minute. Hell, in, the, in our tradition, in the Latin tradition, is a place of punishment where you go forever. Mm. You don't get out of hell. <laughs> Ever. So now they've got themselves a problem. As you quite rightly said, at a certain point, we start seeing flames. It's not in the earliest ones, but you see it surrounded by flames. Mm. By around, I would say, or maybe 1100, you start seeing exactly the same scene. Now he's taken Adam and Eve out, but they've kind of quietly morphed Hades into hell. And sometimes then you get either a second being down there. And instead of getting Hades, who's simply the gatekeeper of, of Hades, and he's usually shown as a, somebody, a big, strong person because he's mm. holding the gates shut and holding them against. He, he's like, you know, who, like who some of you might see outside one of these clubs, you know. Right. He's a bouncer. <laughs> he's really the bouncer <laughs> inside the gates of Hades. Right. Stuff coming in. And when Jesus flattens the gates in the kind of a top of poor old head is, but he's a great big gray bearded strong man. Mm. Then you start getting him, you know, around the 1100, he's becoming a monster. He's, he's, he's winged, he's clawed. He, he's a demon, mm. the elder or Satan, and it becomes hell. But this creates a huge problem for the Latins. And you can see it around the year 500. Now this is not in an image, but in a text. A bishop, I am kind of remembering a name. I think it was some like Osarius, or I, I don't remember. So, a That's bishop okay. writes writes to Saint Augustine of Hippo and says, "I got this problem. I'm hearing now. He wouldn't be seeing the images. I'm hearing about Jesus going down to Hades, and he says hell, of course. 
and liberating. Then he says, everyone from Hades? Mm. Well, if Jesus did that on the last day, is there going to be anyone in hell? It's got a theological problem because nobody's ever supposed to get out of hell. Mm. And Jesus takes some people out of hell up, up to at least his time. Ah, the poor man's tearing his hair out. And it's fascinating to read Augustine mm. because he's really annoyed. Augustine does not like not having an answer. Yeah. So he writes two pages and he says, whoa, no, 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 no. Jesus went down. He didn't liberate everyone. He just liberated some of the Old Testament prophets mm. who prophesied his coming and they recognized him when he came in and he took them out. Mm. And of course, the answer to that is, excuse me, Adam and Eve ain't Old Testament prophets. And they're already there in the story, not in the, the images yet, of course. You don't have any images before about 700. So at the end, then Augustine says, look, I wish nobody ever said this about he descended into Can <laughs> we take it all back? <laughs> Why couldn't they just say he ascended into Abraham's bosom? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, go away. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's, that is the, the problem. As soon as they start thinking about this, because in Jewish theology, ascension is a possibility for individuals. Enoch had ascended to God. Uh, Elijah had ascended to God. Maybe even Moses had ascended to God. Very holy people could be taken up to God. So mm. it would be keeping, quite keeping within Jewish Christianity or Christian Judaism, those first Jews who are Messianic Jews, given their proper title, would have said Jesus has ascended to God. Mm. Like Elijah, like um, Enoch, he was very holy. And the Romans would have said, well, we believe that very powerful people have ascended the God. We're not into holiness, we're into power. So yeah, Caesar has gone up to the gods and Julius Caesar is among the gods and Romulus, of course, our founder, hmm. ascended among the gods. So you're saying that your guy, Jesus, is very powerful. Hmm. Yeah, so you're claiming he's powerful. We don't see it, but we understand what you're claiming. So assumption would have been quite in keeping with even an empty tomb, even with visions afterwards, Romans would have no trouble. They wouldn't believe in it hmm. because they think Jesus was powerful, but they'd understand the claim. Hmm. They'd say, yeah, we understand. You're saying Romulus was our founder and he was taken up to the gods. You're saying Jesus is your founder and he was taken up to heaven. We don't believe a word of it, but we know what you're saying. Hmm. And that's why you want to get killed. Hmm. <laughs> if we didn't understand you, <laughs> we wouldn't bother you. Right. We know exactly what you're saying. You're saying Christ is your founder and he's more important than Romulus, our founder, or Caesar. Hmm. I guess then as hell began to replace Hades, I'm just thinking about this now, I guess the, the, the theology, so to speak, would have, been, would have changed from Jesus descending into Hades to rescue everyone to Jesus descending into hell to save a few. Is that correct? You'd have to say that. Yeah. You'd have to say that. Which huh. means, of course, the images of Adam and Eve won't work at all. Yeah. We should have images of him taking out maybe... Moses and David or Abraham and David mm. and where are the pictures of that well we don't have them where is there any stories about that in the early text we don't have them mm. we have early texts talking about uh, Hades was empty there was not a single grave left unemptied so we simply don't have them yeah and the truth would be of course if you or I were, were asked at any time any 
give me the people who are coming out with with Jesus, I mean, I would probably have come up with somebody like Abraham or Moses or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah, or somebody like that. Right, the big figures, yeah. <laughs> the big figures. I sure as heck would never have thought of Adam and Eve, but I thought yeah. they were the problem. Huh. So it's, it's a very different image when Jesus comes out alone. And I mean, I would simply say, people, the first thing you have to know, this is a fact. There is no image, excuse me, there is no description of the resurrection in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this problem. Right. <laughs> we don't have it about anything else. The second thing is the fact there is a Western, well, in the first thousand years of Christianity, I'm going to put it neutrally, there are two separate images. An individual image, Jesus alone, and an universal image. They're both there. They're both there in the first thousand years. And if you ask me around the year 1000, looking over the tradition, which will become normative? I think it could have gone either way. Hmm. Could have. Or even better, it could have gone together. Because from the 1500s on, there are a lot of especially Russian icons for Easter which show like an upstairs, downstairs image. Downstairs, Jesus is liberating the whole human race, typical Eastern tradition. Mm -hmm. And then straight above him, not given bigger or anything else, he's coming out of the tomb to tell people, now go with the program as it were. Mm -hmm. Establish the program downstairs. I'm coming up to tell you people, get with it. Mm -hmm. So you have in the first millennium, two images. In the second millennium, especially, I think, after the Fourth Crusade slaughtered Christians in Constantinople and the split became irrevocable, I think, at that point. I think it was, a, it was created not so much by theological debates as by almost <laughs> genocide in the streets of mm. Constantinople. The West said, this is our image. And the East said, this is our image. Mm. And now you have the Western image of individual, the Eastern image of universal, and except for those reconciliations which you get in some of the, the Russian mm. ones. In one sense, if I was looking at the future and wanted to really get serious, I would almost prefer those last Russian images where you have both. Mm. So the resurrection is so important as it were, it gets a double image. It's the only one that has a double image. And they're put together, as I said, like an upstairs, downstairs, so that none is given precedence over the other. One isn't tucked into the corner or you know, off to the side. Hmm. But there's many places in, in churches that we were in all over Italy, for example, where you have both images side hmm. by side just side by side, not combined. Because when the West decided that this is going to be ours, it was about, you know, hundreds of years too late. You had frescoes and mosaics all over, you know, places like, uh, not Ravenna, there's none there, but you have places like in, in say, Venice and St. Mark's in Venice, mm -hmm. or in, in um, Moriale in Sicily. These were all under... Eastern influence. And so what are you going to do when you have a huge mosaic 
mm. showing Jesus in a in a Western church. You can't get rid of it. Mm. If it's a fresco, you might be able to plank another one next to it. But if you put a giant mosaic dating, you know, let's say from the year 1300, and it shows the Eastern one in a Western church, well, what can you do about it? Mm. It just shows that it could have gone either way. And in fact, the earliest example we have historically extant of the Eastern vision, that is Jesus standing on Hades and taking Adam and Eve out is not where you'd expect it to be. Mm. It's in Santa Maria Antiqua in the Forum in Rome from the year 700 in a papal church. Mm. <laughs> Except, of course, the pope, pope was a Byzantine, mm. John VII. So, of course, he's going with the Byzantine tradition. <laughs> but the irony is that the oldest one of the Eastern is in the Western church. <laughs> Which you'd never think of. <laughs> Not who you'd go to, to expect it to be at yeah. all. Huh. And what is, the oldest, um, what is the oldest piece of art that we have? Like, what does that depict? The, in the earliest thing, say, after the Edict of, of Constantine, when Christianity, I'm talking about 325, was made officially allowed. It wasn't made the formal religion of the Roman Empire, but it was mm. tolerated, and that's too weak a word, tolerated and sponsored. Mm. I think if you were if you were a courtier under under Constantine, you got the message. <laughs> this, yeah, was, right. <laughs> this was the future. Time to shift a little bit here. Mm. So immediately Christians wanted to know. All right, let me give you an example. The place is Arles, which in the fourth century is probably even more important than Rome. Arles is on the mouth of the Rhone River, um, east of Marseille in France. So it's a huge Christian. Not, necropolis probably the largest in the world mm. christian world i mean christian necropolis and christian said we would like to have on our sarcophagus images of the resurrection please <laughs> dear dear stonemason that's what we want <laughs> um we, I mean, i'm depicting now an actual sarcophagus it, it's preserved in the vatican pio christiana museum in the vatican uh, museums in rome so i'm describing what actually exists mm. dating from around oh um, it could be as early even as um, 300. So it's right, right on the cusp of when Rome is becoming. So you have a, you have a scene, say, of uh, Jesus being arrested. You have a scene of Jesus uh, crowned with thorns. On the mm. far side of the center, you have a scene of Jesus before Pilate. Now, stonemason, I want you to put in the middle a picture of the resurrection. And you're back with the problem. Right. <laughs> Excuse me, how do I do a picture of the resurrection? Mm. Well, I don't know. I'm paying you. That's your problem. <laughs> so what he did was there were coins in Arles in the late 300s, say some 350 to 400. And on these coins, they showed a cross. And above the cross was a round wreath of victory. Mm. And inside that was the Kiro symbol. You know, the, the, the abbreviation for CHR, hero. Mm. And this was the standard of Constantine showing the victory of Christ. That's what the, the wreath around the monogram, hero, and on a cross. And then on either side of that in the coin were two soldiers standing guard. Mm. Now, 
they're standing guard with their spears pointing downwards. So it's a peaceful guard, you know, it's mm. an honor guard, you might, we might call it. So if somebody, the date is anywhere between 350 and 400, the place is Arles in the southern Rhone Valley near the Mediterranean, had, had a brainwave. Mm. <laughs> Probably necessitated because he had to. <laughs> I could take that image. It's an image of the victory of Christ. And instead of these two soldiers standing guard, I put the two soldiers from Matthew's gospel, one sleeping and one watching. Mm. And I, I put them, his head is down on his shield so everyone can see he's resting on his shield. He's asleep. And I have an image of the resurrection. Mm. And we have all over in the year 350 to 400, hundreds of a sarcophagi like that, most of which unfortunately have been vandalized during the French Revolution so that the key row has been gouged out. But we have enough of them that are complete to know exactly what it was. So that is in the West now. The East hasn't even got there yet. We have an image, but it's a symbolic image. Hmm. So I think people would have said immediately, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You're showing Jesus being arrested. You're showing Jesus carrying his cross. You're showing Jesus before Pilate. He's physically there. We got two physical soldiers. And then we have this stick figure as it were. Right. Why, why don't we have a picture of Jesus? Hmm. But it, t- it takes about, let's say in round numbers, let's say this is there by the year 400. It takes almost another 500 years in the West hmm. up to about the year 900 before anyone says, we have to show him coming out of the tomb. Hmm. You know, we can't just have a, a kind of a stick figure with a, with a key row on it symbolizing Jesus. Hmm. So it's about between 850 and 900 before you get the first image. And one of them is really, it's, it's on an illustrated Psalter and it shows Jesus kind of sitting up in the sarcophagus mm. and he's looking out like wide-eyed what happened here mm. He's not he's not out of it yet. He's not hovering above it. Mm. So the West was very slow Taking hundreds of years to finally put in a physical figure and then eventually to have Jesus Maybe by 1200 he's stepping out mm. And by the time we get the picture that you and I know so well it's really the 1300s before we have them hovering above it. Yeah. So most people don't even know that. That, that picture took, what's that, from, from 400 to 1300, what's that? 900 years. 900 yeah. years. Yeah. People to slowly get. And in the meanwhile, of course, huh. they said from 700 on, the East has got its image. Hmm. So the, the West got there first in 400, but it had a symbolic image. Right. East got there in 700 with a physical image, but it was different. Hmm. So the history of it, even if you, if you just focused on the West alone, yeah, is fascinating because you're watching people moving slowly towards it. But what's always pulling from the background is that in Jewish theology, where all of this starts out of, assumption is up for individuals. Hmm. Resurrection is never for an individual. There's kind of no concept in Judaism of resurrection for an individual. Hmm. So Paul has to say, when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, 
he's the firstborn or the first fruits of the general resurrection. Mm. So Paul is saying, well, I'm saying that's where I'm getting it. The general resurrection has already begun. Mm. It's going on. Mm. And Paul has no compunction saying to his people, you have been resurrected with Christ. That's a direct quotation from Romans. Mm. Not you will be, but you have been resurrected. Mm. And he's telling them in effect, start living like it. You have been executed. You have been buried. Mm. They're all have beens. You have been. Now start acting like it. Mm. Exactly the same thing the New Testament says to us. We have been resurrected with Christ. Start acting like it. Mm. And that means, of course, changing the world. Because as we know from the New Testament, God so loved the world. Not just God so loved me or you or any of us. Mm. So this this episode is going to be dropping on Easter morning, and a lot of my listeners, um, some people go to church still, some people haven't been going to church, so some people might actually listen to this um, almost as their Easter morning message. So what I wanted to do is to kind of close out our time together. Uh, can you maybe, if if people if people are sitting here with us right now on microphones talking to us, um, what would you say to them um, in a maybe a I guess maybe a pastoral kind of a way, since you do speak in churches sometimes and things like that, what kind of message do you want to leave people with um, after they've read your book, they've encountered this other way of understanding the resurrection, uh, go out into the world, like you just said, live like resurrected people. What does that, what does that mean for the everyday person who's working a nine to five job? Um, they're trying to raise a child. They're a stay at home mom. What does that look like for the average person? And I know, and it's ironic that one of the most famous statements in Christianity is God so loved the world, right, that he sent a son. Yeah. And yet most of us reinterpret that. And I've seen a pastor do it actually on local television from a local church. Repeat, repeat that as God so loved me. Mm. Well, of course God loves you because you're in the world and part of the world. Yeah. But if you start with me or you or even us, you may never get to the world. If you start with the world, you got to you right away because what else is going on? Mm. So the challenge of Easter, let me see. You know, at Christmas, we have all those lovely carols. So even if you're not particularly, you know, church going, you hear the carols and they're beautiful. Right, yeah. Where are the carols of Easter? Mm. It's, it's almost like we're embarrassed by Easter. Let's get it over fast and talk about bunnies and eggs. Um, <laughs> and we don't quite know what it has to do with the execution. Um, we, 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 don't, we don't understand the whole thing. Mm. And that means actually that the heart of Christianity has been gone. Mm. It's ripped out. It's, it, the, the body is there, but the heart is gone. Because the beating heart of Christianity is Easter. Mm. It's not Christmas. Christmas is the birth of the child, of course. But it's the child who is going to be executed for nonviolent resistance to the normal violence of civilization. It, it's not just about the Romans. Romans were simply, they would say, well, we're just doing what everyone else has always done. Mm. We're the normalcy of civilization, first century Mediterranean version. Mm. And what, what Christianity says despite all the weirdness about it, and I know much about it as a new you know, um, at the heart of Christianity is this challenge. God so loved the world 
get with the program for the world. Mm. Okay, and I'm going to say, before it is too late. Because there is an opposing version of the world out there. And it's doing really well. And you can see it all around us. It's not doing too well for the world. Or most of us in it might be doing well for some of us. It always did well for some of us. Mm. Those are the ones who'd have said to Jesus and Paul, but we're doing fine. What's your problem? Right. <laughs> <laughs> go back to Galilee and go back to Tarsus. Yeah. So yeah, I would, I would ask them, don't just look at all the wrong things about Christianity. Huh. Yeah, it's been around 2000 years. So God knows there's enough warts that sometimes you can't even see the face of Christianity. Mm. But yes, there's a vision of Jesus incarnated in Jesus which is a challenge, I'm going to say the human evolution. I, I don't want to make this sound, oh, this is just about Christianity. So if you're not into the Bible or Christianity, yeah, I just skip it. It's, it's just for Christians. This is the challenge to, I'm going to call it the normalcy of civilization and the escalatory nature of violence. Not because we're getting more evil, I don't believe that for a second. Mm. We're just getting more dangerous toys. You can only do the Roman Empire at the worst day had to stop at nightfall because it couldn't see in the dark. And you can't hold a sword after it gets too bloody in any case because it'll slip out of your hand. Mm. We have got weapons that can destroy the world. Rome didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> it just couldn't do it. If you, mm. you take a sword to an olive tree, the olive tree is going to win. <laughs> Hands down. So you can only do so much. To take escalatory violence serious to take not pacifism I'm not talking about that but nonviolent resistance seriously because it might be the only thing that's going to save the human race human species and sorry if that sounds over dramatic or over apocalyptic but I'm not trying to be a prophet I'm just trying to look at the trajectory as I said of 3,000 years from iron sword to atomic bomb hmm. We are very good at doing certain things. Wow. Well, Dom, this has been a uh, very enlightening conversation for me. I, I really appreciate your time uh, joining me. Uh, before you go, where can people find you online? And are you working on anything uh, new that you want to share with us? Well, they can, they can find me online at my website is www.johndominicrossan.com. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. And I have a web page as well on yeah. Facebook. And they can find me at either place. And of course, without making this a commercial message, <laughs> but make it as a theological challenge, please take Easter seriously. Yeah. And even if you go on the web and put up you know, Eastern images of resurrection, you'll see what I, what I see. It's all there. The images mm. are there. If you put in the Western, you'll get the traditional ones. If you put just in images of Easter, you'll get a mixture but start to see the difference hmm. and focus on Adam and Eve. And it's all there because <laughs> Google knows everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very true. Well, Dom, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have to have you on again sometime. All right. Anytime then. Thank you very much for your time. Happy thank Easter. you, sir. Happy Easter. Bye-bye.
just for goodness sake.